The Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Hello everyone and welcome to the Provoke podcast. I'm Maya Pavinska-Sims, Provoke's EMEA editor, and I'm joined down the line by Chris McCafferty, the UK Chief Executive of Publicis Group PR agency MSL. Um, Chris has had a really interesting career across agencies and in-house, which we'll touch on later. Um, he was a director at the Red Consultancy in Shine, he was a founder MD of Caper and then Karmarama, and also has had in-house stints at MSN, MySpace, and uh, before returning to agency world in uh, 2019 at MSL, he had a different sort of role at Accenture Interactive, the consultancy's experiential um, division. Chris, welcome to the Provoke podcast. Thanks, Maya. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks, for, thanks for joining me. How are you all doing? How's lockdown three going for you and the family? Uh, yeah, okay, uh, good. I mean, like everybody, a little bit up and down, I guess, right? And I think what everybody's finding, whether it's on a family level or a work level, is uh, the ups and downs are coming a bit more quickly, aren't they? So where the bad days are a bit more spaced out in lockdown one, uh, they're coming a bit more frequently now. So, uh, yeah, I just think we have to, whether it's with family or whether it's with the team, we just, we just keep keep doing good basics, keep communicating, keep talking about how we're feeling. And uh, before you know it, it will be April, May, whenever. And uh, life will be hopefully getting back to somewhat nearer to normal. Oh, gosh, I do hope you're all right. Yes, it does. I, mean, <laughs> I can't believe it's... Uh, we're, we're not even like three weeks into January yet. This year has been going on for quite yeah, a month well, already, frankly. Um, now, well, you gave MSL almost 18 months ago, 18 months next um, next month, won't it? Tell me, what, yeah. the, what was the scale of the task? What was the attraction of coming back into agency land at that point? Well, yeah, maybe go back another half step because it's worth just covering that little bit of context. So you mentioned um, Accenture Interactive. So I sold my business as part of the Karmarama business to Accenture back in, uh, I think it was 2017. And I spent, as a result, sort of two and a half years being a management consultant, set up a thing called uh, the Experience Agency, which was working across all of the capabilities of Accenture and our creative business in it, businesses in Accenture Interactive. Um, and whilst I really enjoyed that, I really, really, really missed the craft of our industry, you know, the craft of communication and also the people within it. I really missed all the characters and so on that I've become friends with over, over the years. And we're lucky to have an industry that is, you know, so friendly and supportive to each other. So I had a choice, really. Well, I had three choices at that point. I, I could remain a management consultant. That was going well, but wasn't making me happy. Um, I had funding to start another agency at that point and had written the business plan and so on. I was quite intrigued by that. But then this opportunity came across my desk. I was uh, introduced to Annette King, who's the group CEO of Publicis UK. And she outlines, you know, what I you know, very quickly saw it was a fantastic opportunity to come in and lead that part of the business for publicists in the UK. And, you know, I think we can probably acknowledge that um, MSL hadn't probably had its most successful, let's say, five years leading up to, to that point and was was in need of some attention. And we need we need to needed to modernise the business. We need to rally the people behind it and we need to sort of um, 
really show up within the group and show what we stood for as, as a progressive PR business. And that's what we've done over the last 18 months is we've done all of that hard, hard work of reinvigorating a business of which the belief stack, which I know we'll go on to talk about later, is, is a big part of. So I, I, I was really excited by it. I've never had a networked job before. I've never worked in a big network unless you count the, the year or so that I had with uh, Weber back in like 1998 or something ridiculous like that so it's uh, it's an entirely new experience for me but one I'm really enjoying and how how are things shaping up there how do you what difference would you say tangibly you've made over your your first 18 months um I think we've got uh, to use the phrase that we're using within the positioning for the agencies we've got a real fresh belief uh, within the agency so uh, we've created this new positioning around for the agency called We, we Build Belief, and that's um, it's a huge part of the offer that we take to clients, but it's also a massive part of the culture that we've created within MSL. Um, and I think we have a real swagger back in the agency and a real confidence in the work that we're doing. That started with the people um, and getting everybody to understand and really buy into a progressive agenda. Uh, and also the, the, the big next step was to, um, was to, I guess, evangelize, if that's the right word, that message out through the publicist group. And now we have the power of the publicist group behind us. We've got 21 other agencies who are batting on our behalf and taking a lot of our thinking to market. And that's been massive for us. And I think, you know, you're seeing that in the uh, trajectory of the business and the momentum that we have. Uh, commercially so some of the big clients to, to have chosen us and come to MSL in the last year are the likes of uh, Puma, Watch Manufacturer, Fossil, Cafe Pacific, um, Subway, uh, uh, Bank of America and, and many many others. AXA is another great example of a cross-group client and we're, we're seeing those kind of tier one brands come to the agency and you know love working with us and producing great creative work so Hopefully, um, I know internally everybody's uh, excited by all of that, and I think we're, we're seeing more and more market presence and market cut through for us uh, NSL on the on the external market, as it were. So I'm I'm really happy. I'm really happy with the progress that we've made. We've still got a long way to go, but um, I'm I, you know if if I assess the first 18 months, particularly when you throw a pandemic in to uh, to contend with as well, I'm I'm really happy with where we've got to. It does sound like you've you've uh, really shaken things up and, and refreshed the offer, which, as you said, is is now we build belief. Now we, you know, agency offers, as I've said to you before, are like not that much interest to everybody. It's more, it feels like it's more of a guiding light for you internally than anything else. But you've got this. This is actually backed up with substance for a change. We, you've got got this huge new data driven insights tool, Belief Stack. Um, yeah. which uh, you've introduced, as we said in our story a couple of weeks ago, to help brands better understand the deeply held beliefs and values of their audiences. And tell me about the, where this all came from. Why did you decide you needed this particular tool or offer? So again, I, I've spent the vast majority of my career in the independent end of the market. So I started my career at the Red Consultancy when I, I think we won best, new, best agency in the market, sort of three years out of five. And it was a fresh progressive offering at that point around uh, sort of the advent of news generation and that whole um, 
sort of era through the industry. I've then gone on to, to uh, create my own agency, which had its own sort of take on uh, integrated campaigning and so on. And it, it just was a reflection that the independent end of the market can uh, and often does disproportionately outperform the networked end of the market. Now, the networked end of the market, of course, is larger and has all the resources that it has. But why is it that a small independent startup can be a large agency in a pitch? And I think there's a, a, the biggest reason for that is that those agencies have a compelling point of view on the world. Yeah. And I think that's what clients are looking for. They're looking for something that really differentiates that agency, that is a, a rallying call for the work that they do, for the people that they employ, the people that work there, and, and the sort of, you know, the philosophy that that agency represents. Now, as you say, no one really cares about agency positionings, but, but in the outside world. But I think what people do care about are if that positioning is, is built in, you know, kind of uh, a public truth if you like is the motivations and thinking that goes behind it so strip away our positioning for a second why have we come up with it it's to give us that compelling point of view on the world and give us something all to rally behind but really importantly I, I think it reflects an era where the way that you show up be that as an individual as a person or as a brand or as a business is almost becoming as important as the what that you do so you know in, in the old days it didn't matter what your behaviors were like as an individual within a business if you were for example selling it was great people would, would people would excuse the behavior that went behind that that's now not true the way that we all independently show up the way the brand shot is fundamentally important so the the belief positioning and then the belief stack that that as you say kind of backs it all up allows us to get to that insight and allows us to create much more compelling creative insights, which therefore builds greater creative, which drives greater impact for our clients. And in practice, how does it work for clients? Give me some examples of, of where it's already making a difference. So the, the platform itself draws on two data sets, if you like. So it's, it's built on the, um, uh, the work of uh, a psychological psychology professor, excuse me, called Professor Shalom Swartz. He's created these, this universally recognized 19 universal values, which are shared across cultures, across geographies, across countries, across ages, and so on. And all of us uh, base our opinions and our decision-making processes and so on on these universal values. You know, things like humility, things like tradition, things like hedonism, things like stimulation. And those 19 values guide the way that we act. And the way that we talk about it is we like to think of belief being created through those values as, as the human algorithm that directs our choices, directs the way that we act. So that's the, that's the first data set. We've got data on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of brands on their belief scores across those different 19 uh, universal values. And then we've, uh, working with the uh, publicist uh, data team, we've been able to plug that into GWI. So GWI is the world leading provider of, um, I guess, kind of campaign and behavior insights. So that is everything from the preferences that people have, the brands that they like or don't like, through to their media behavior, through to their, um, you know, digital behaviors and so on. It's, it's a classic kind of insight uh, platform that 
any good insight business, you know, be it a media business, creative business, whatever, would use. But uniquely, we've been able to bring those two things together and so that I can go into that platform and not only define what values a particular audience holds, it might be a fan of a particular uh, brand or it might be detractors of a particular brand, and I can look at the values that those people uh, self-express um, in, in the measurement that we've done. So I, I can show you what the values of an Apple iPod owner um, iPod, look at that. That, that, that ages me. Apple iPhone, I should say, <laughs> um, owner uh, has versus a Samsung, you know, Galaxy, etc. So we, we can pull those audiences apart and look at the, the, the value differences uh, between those audiences. So that's the first thing, that's the belief score. And then importantly, there's a belief gap. So what we can do is we can look at the gap between the belief in your brand or your business or your idea versus true advocacy in that space, true belief in that space. So you might be at uh, a belief score of 67, uh, so we marked out of 100, and true advocacy in that market is at 78. And we can look at the important values, the important beliefs that drive impact in your market, and we can create campaigns that talk directly to that audience and directly to those beliefs. And that's where we think we get beyond the obvious and start getting into really powerful work that can change preference and change behavior. And I mean, talking about getting beyond the obvious, has, has this actually brought up any surprises? Because you know, PR has always been a art plus science, hasn't it? You yeah. know, a bit of gut instincts backed with some back with some data and it's, it feels like you know everyone's kind of going deeper and deeper into that data and then getting the deeper insights which lead to kind of more resonant creative which can only be a good thing for the industry but yeah. does it really ever throw up any surprises this kind of platform i'll answer the surprises piece in a minute but let me just pause a second on on the on the gut instinct thing so the, the power of a good pr person is they have a phenomenal understanding of the audiences and the cultures that they're operating in and they use that in in the past to interpret their gut instinct and the best people that have the best understanding of that come up with the best work what this tool allows us to do is to systemize that and to allow us to spread that through the entire operation of the business and the entire team so it puts real genuine data behind what used to be our own gut theories now we obviously we still use our gut and we still enjoy and luxuriate in the creative process which in itself is less data driven but um, I, I think that's an interesting point that arguably this platform allows us to put data behind what previously would have been just a gut feeling um, in terms of the surprises, it's still obviously relatively early stages for the platform. So we've only launched it um, last week and we've been using it in beta and alpha testing uh, up to launch for the last kind of six months. And I think as a generalisation, it's difficult to talk about specifics because they're all client confidential. But as a generalisation, what we're finding is that um, the the insights at the extremities of belief are where the real magic lies. Mm. So if I look at what makes a true advocate, a true advocate and a true believer in that brand and what are the values that that cohort of people have, then that starts to point towards some really interesting 
um, areas that we can focus on to drag more people into that or persuade more people into that audience. But equally, the uh, people who are true rejectors of a brand, the people who really are, if you like, a non-believer to a brand, equally might have some equally interesting um, beliefs that would guide us as to the work that we need to do to ensure we talk to those that, you know, um, talk, talk to the belief driving uh, values as opposed to the uh, uh, values that might work in the opposite direction. So those the extremities of belief, I think, are, are, we're finding to be the most interesting. Mm. Um, we've used it across, you know, uh, Puma, for example, we're working, working with it across Subway. Uh, it's in every single pitch that we do. So it, pitching particularly at the moment in the rail industry there's some interesting values and when you start to dig into that industry um so across the board because it's getting to universal human values there's we, we've yet to find a sector or a brand where we haven't at least found something that's you know made us raise our eyebrows and start to uh, create a brief and creative around that I'm, I'm interested in where the sweet spot is between those kind of rejectors and fans of a brand for putting marketing attention and budget because I mean it's a bit like the COVID vaccine situation isn't it you're going to have the people who will take you know will have it anyway no brainer you'll have those who are virulent anti-vaxxers who you're never going to win around but there's that bit in the middle where you may or may not be able to um, persuade or come up with points of resonance you know something that actually connects with that that big audience in the middle who are neither fans nor rejectors of something so does this does this help you really identify where attention should be put for a brand yeah so, so it's, a, it's a good example and if follow through your example we would really recommend in fact I'm not sure we have yet recommended that we would focus um uh investment and you know investing in attention in the rejectors so in, the, in your example, the anti-vaxxers, are you going to persuade those people? Quite possibly not. But if you think about the classic distribution curve, that is the very right-hand side, if you like, of that distribution curve. Uh, but you start to click up a couple of points on that distribution curve and the learnings that you can get from the rejectors and the true believers are going to give you the key insights for how you take people into kind of, you know, pa a passive rejector, if you like, into an acceptor of that brand or that message, and again, in your example, therefore getting a needle in their arm to, to take the vaccine. So it's, um, you're, you're right, it's, uh, it, it, we wouldn't tend to recommend that we um, focus investment on that rejector part of that audience. Yeah, I mean, there's only so much you can do, isn't there, with, with the greatest yeah. data and insight stack in the world, really. Yeah, yeah. So tell me a bit, I mean, this is obviously a key, a key bit of what MSL is doing in the UK. How does that fit into kind of the broader uh, MSL and publicity universe? I mean, you said at the beginning, it feels like you're, you're really part of an integrated network. How, you, how do you work together as agencies? And, and is this belief stack going to be something that is going to roll, be rolled out across the group? How, how, how are you fitting in there now? It's absolutely available to the whole group and we're working on specific, you know, cross cross group initiatives at the moment where belief stack will be a big part of our insight process. And, and indeed, the kind of belief positioning for the right pitch might well be our coordinated positioning for that pitch, whether it be a PR pitch, a creative pitch, you know, even into a media pitch. So it's available to everybody. We're in the process of rolling that out across the strategy teams and insight teams and so on. 
um, across the group. And we have a uh, go-to-market, if you like, within the group called The Power of One, where we bring to bear all of the different agencies and capabilities into an integrated brief that a client might need to drive their growth. So it's a big part of that. It's part of a big set of tools that we have across the entire group. Um, and absolutely, it's, it's available. Um, and, and the power of one was a big part, just going all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, mm. was a big part of the reason I chose to come here is the opportunity to do fully integrated work across all those different disciplines and agencies and, you know, the opportunity to work with some of the amazing agencies like BBH, like such and such, like Leo's, like all of the published media brands that we've got, yeah. that's a hugely exciting opportunity. What the belief stack gives us in those conversations is access to the kind of unique data to, that those other disciplines have always had. And it means we can almost be, uh, you know, our insights are as powerful as theirs because they're as provable as theirs, if you like, and it means we've got something more of a level playing field. Whereas I think PR in the past, if you go back, you know, probably not this current generation, but you go back a little bit further, uh, you know, we would bring our gut feel to the table, but it probably wasn't quite enough because we needed some more data to back that up. And it's great that the industry has gone further down that road and we've now got the types of data that can prove, be it belief that we're talking to or, you know, other kind of lenses on human behavior. Mm, PR's proof points have always been and continue to be the biggest bugbear for the industry to really nail, don't they? So I think all this stuff really, really does help. Tell me a bit about your, you know, now you've kind of got MSL back up and running, as it yeah. were, and it's it's lost its its rustiness. What what are your ambitions, not just for this year, but still, you know, is we're still in COVID time, so it's just weird isn't it but the future of the agency where do you think it can go within the market i think we've got massive upside massive massive growth potential within the market if you look at the relative size of uh pr within the publicist group versus our most obvious and immediate competitors in the other marketing services groups then we're a little bit underweight so I, I think we've got a lot of growth potential and uh, we've got all of the backing and all the investment and all of the people and so on to make that happen. And, and I think now we have, you know, a proposition that we can all rally behind to drive that growth um, uh, here in this market and obviously beyond. Um, internally, we talk about uh, a couple of ambitions. This isn't something you'll ever find on a website or anything, but we, we, we talk about the ambition to be the most progressive agency in the market um, and a home for new progressive talent, uh, new diverse talent, forgive me. Um, and that, that's, a, that's a big ask, right? There are some fantastic progressive agencies in our market and lots of agencies that, that I admire, but our ambition will always be that now. It will be to be the most progressive agency within the market and you can define the market however you want you can define it as the uk you can define it as london you can define it as the world you can define it as a particular sector don't really care it's about this ambition to be progressive and uh the the the, the belief stack is part of that the reason it's called a stack is because we've already got a roadmap of further product development uh that that will um help its connection into other parts of the publicist group so we're going to 
you know, look at a layer that, that connects it with commerce media, for example, that's all for future development. Um, but we will continue to focus on being a progressive agency that, that drives results for our clients through progressive work. And um, in one sense, I don't even care if we don't make that to be the single most progressive agency in the market, because we'll always be striving to be more progressive anyway. So it's a constantly moving target. Um, and then the, the, the home of uh, new diverse talent is, is a big kind of focus for us. I don't think you can be progressive and the most progressive agency in the market if you've got a kind of um, single culture and single way of thinking in the agency. So we're, we're making huge investments and huge strides and already have done in the last 18 months on uh, addressing both, both the you know, cultural diversity, diversity of thinking and background, and obviously uh, racial diversity within the team as well. And that's a massive focus for us. And those are my those are my two big ambitions. That they're, they're both quite big ambitions, but we've we've made massive progress already. But we've got a long way to go. Uh, yeah, big challenges for the whole industry as well as mm -hmm. um, um Who who else do you admire in the PR industry? Now you're kind of back in the room, as it were, and you've been casting your eyes around for the part of the next, um, the you know the the future of where you think the industry is going. Who who do you admire at the moment? Who do you think is also heading in that progressive direction? You mean in terms of other agencies or yeah. people or agencies other agencies? People. A, yeah, other agencies or if there are any individuals who have caught your eye? Uh, look, I'm, luck I'm lucky to have a, um, a community of people around me that I largely developed through my time as an independent agency founder, who's all, all of whom is agencies I massively admire. So you look at what Hope and Glory have achieved, I think it's phenomenal. If you look at what Warren has achieved, at W, um, you know, I continue to be impressed by Taylor Herring uh, and the specific skills that they've got uh, and the creativity, that leadership that they show and so on. So I'm lucky, I'm, I'm, I, I count lots of those guys as close friends within the industry. And I think, um, you know, I, I think they continue to, to define the independent end of the market. Mm. If I think about the networks end of the market, I admire uh, I think Ogilvy are doing some good work and obviously with Matt made a fantastic uh, leadership hire there. Uh, Edelman continue to sort of intrigue me. I'm not, a, I don't know Edelman well. I think they're making some interesting moves, but I genuinely think at the networked end of the market, there is a, there is a gap in the market for a more opinionated, more progressive networked agency. And that's, that's what we're aiming to be. And I think, you know, again, we're making some strides. We've got a long, 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 long way to go. Uh, but that is the, that's the growth opportunity for me. If we can nail that to be this progressive opinionated network agency, then I think, I think the work will follow. I think the people will follow. And I think therefore the, the money will follow. Brilliant. And finally, Chris, if I can prevail on you to be opinionated, uh, so, um, what uh, what one hobby or behaviour or habit have you taken up in lockdown that you think you will continue afterwards, or one that you're going to drop immediately that we get back to that humanity and hedonism that the industry is so well known for? I'll give you two. Uh, so one is a sporting one. So I've rediscovered my love of tennis. Because uh, it was the first first sport, obviously, to kind of get released out of lockdown after lockdown one. 
and uh, I used to play a bit as a kid, but just socially, and I've completely fallen in love with the game. So, you know, I look over my shoulder and I'm looking at a room full of tennis equipment, which I've ordered during lockdown and still haven't used half of it. So tennis is a big thing for me and it's making me, um, it's a bit of an escape for me. It makes me really, really happy and really good for my mental health. Yeah. Um, the other obsession that I've developed during lockdown is I'm obsessed with American politics and political podcasts. <laughs> so it's not something that I had, uh, you know, obviously I always had a watching brief on it, but I've become a real podcast geek around the kind of dystopian uh, soap opera that is American politics and uh, again I don't see that going away to be honest. Well it's certainly so, been a year for it hasn't it? <laughs> definitely yeah yeah. Um, thank you so much for joining me today it's been great chatting through everything it, re- it feels like I, I'd love your description of MSL as getting its swagger back I think we could all do mm. it with a bit more of that and, um, and long may it continue I'll be keeping a close eye on things as you can imagine. Great. Yeah, well, thank you for having me, Mike. It's been uh, lovely talking to you. An absolute pleasure. Take care. I'll speak to you soon. You too. Take care. You've been listening to the Provoke podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Marketeers.